How's it, everyone? Um, good morning. Those interns are such a legend group of people. If you've never met them face to face, today might be your day. They are awesome. It's been a privilege watching them journey throughout this year. Um, it's so good to see everyone. I know everyone said that already, but it really is. Um, I think I might have over-welcomed some of you this morning. I'm just so stoked to have you all here, and especially some of you we haven't seen your faces for a long time, so we're really stoked that you are all here today. Um, if you don't know who I am, my name is Debbie. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, for those of you online, we are super stoked that you are here as well. Um, just a reminder, we are in the middle of a series, well, we're actually ending off a series today called Heroes of the Faith, where we've been looking at ordinary people who have become heroes of the faith um, because of the way that they've leaned into their relationship with Jesus. And um, we, the first week we looked at a bunch of local heroes, we heard of stories from regular, ordinary people in our church and how God is using them. Um, if you look at the screen, those are there were two couples that founded our church, and um, those are the wives in, the, in the, those couples, and the one on the right is my granny. How nice is that, eh? Esther Monroe and Rita Harland, also ordinary people who gave their lives to Jesus and became heroes of the faith. Um, we lent into the character of Susanna Wesley, who was a lady with 19 children. <clears throat> yeah hero of the faith right there. <laughs> but um, Cindy told us that she managed to find solitude, solitude with Jesus under her apron. She set aside time when she went under her apron. The kids just knew, just leave mom alone. She's with Jesus. Um, last week, John introduced us to Teresa of Avila, who was a, a woman who was told to keep quiet, as was customary in, in the day. And yet she managed to, to discover and led subsequent people in this discovery that in your silence, you can communicate with Jesus everywhere you are. And so she has shared that with so many people. Um, today we're going to finish off the series and look at one last hero of the faith. There are loads of them. But before we do that, I'm going to play a little game with us that I'm calling Who Said It First, right? So I'm going to give you a famous quote. You're going to tell me who said it, right? Got it? Easy? So you can just shout it if you know. Um, I'll start with the easy one, but let me finish before you all shout at me. Um, those people at home, also just shout at the screen. Then you can win every time. It's fine. Okay, so who said that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind? Neil Armstrong. Too easy. Hey. Okay, who said this? Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. John, <laughs> he probably has said it sometime, but who said it first? Who said that? Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. No, but I think I heard it over there. Martin Luther King Jr. said that, okay? Who said wise men say only fools Russian? Who said that? Elvis, we've got an Elvis, but who said it first? No, no, it was Elvis. Subsequently, UB40 has said that to us numerous times. Elvis, but Elvis actually took the words from poet Alexander Pope. So maybe you didn't know that before. Who said, hasta la vista, baby? Come on, Arnie, that's right. Lots of people have said, hasta la vista, but not baby. That's the thing. He said that first. Um, who said, no one is born hating another person because of the color of their skin? 
Mandela, that's right. And he carried on to say, people must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. Love that quote. You can't just say the beginning. And then last one, who said, make me a channel of your peace? Anyone know this one? St. Francis of Assisi. Well done. Is anyone else singing it in their mind? Yeah, make me a chant. I won't do that to you. I won't sing that for you. Um, St. Francis of Assisi, and he's our hero of the faith that we're going to look at today. St. Francis of Assisi is actually someone that I've quoted numerous times. My favorite thing that he's ever said is preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. It's one of my favorite quotes, and I've quoted him often Um, But I didn't actually know that much about him, and maybe you're in a similar situation to me. So we're going to learn a little bit about St. Francis. Um, He was born in 1181 or 82 in Assisi, Italy. Um, And interestingly, his father was actually away on a business trip when he was born, and his mother named him Giovanni. But when his dad got back, that got changed, so he was then named Francesco Francis. Um, He was born into wealth. His dad was a cloth merchant. Um, And in his 20s, he went off to the army to fight a war, and he was held a prisoner for about a year, and on his release, he fell seriously ill, and so he returned home. He always had intended to return to the army, but on his way there, he was struck with a vision and decided that he would dedicate himself to solitude and prayer in order to find out God's will for his life. And in that time, he heard God saying, go, Francis and repair my house, which is in ruins. So that's what he decided to do. So he hurried home, and essentially he stole some of the fine cloth from his dad's shop, um, and he rode off to the nearest town where he sold the cloth, and he sold his horse, and he took the money to the local church and gave it to the priest um, so that they could fix God's house. But um, it's said that the priest wouldn't, res- wouldn't accept the money, and so Francis threw it out the window. And um, needless to say, his father was a little bit cross with this whole situation, and um, essentially summoned him after a long process before the Bishop of Assisi. And this was one of St. Francis of Assisi's big conversion moments. Before any accusations were made, in the town square in front of the church, Francis stripped down and he handed his clothes to his father and completely naked it's recorded that he said until now I've called you my father on earth but henceforth I can truly say our father who art in heaven can you imagine that moment I mean I don't know what John would have done (laughs) but the bishop was clearly a little bit astonished and gave him a cloak and Francis went he left and went to the woods behind that city So Francis renounced worldly goods, and he renounced family ties, all in order to embrace a life of poverty. And essentially, he set out his time repairing and refurbishing churches, which he did quite a lot of. A little bit later, he heard God calling him to preach the gospel. It was through a reading of Matthew 10, where Jesus says, go and don't take anything with you. And so again, Francis took this literally, and he went and didn't take anything with him, Um, and he preached to anyone who would listen. It's said that he even preached to wild animals. He would preach. He just preached. That's what he wanted to do. When he heard that calling, he said, this is what I want to do from the bottom of my heart. 
And subsequently, a whole bunch of people followed him, so he actually made a simple rule for all those who joined him um, as he went preaching. And this was the rule, to follow the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ and to walk in his footsteps. So anyone who wants to follow me, this is essentially what he's saying. You're welcome to follow me, but this is what we do. We follow the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ and we walk in his footsteps. That's what he did. St. Francis of Assisi is now described as a lover of nature, a social worker, an itinerant preacher, a celebrant of poverty. And essentially, he was a normal guy. I mean, he was very extreme and a little bit weird, but essentially, he was a normal guy who just took what Jesus said literally and obeyed it. That's essentially what he did. Um, it's, it's written that probably no one in recent history has set out as seriously as Francis to imitate the life of Jesus and carry out so literally Christ's work in Christ's way. And so the God space that we're going to look at through the life of St. Francis of Assisi, although there's a lot that I think he lent into, but we're going to look this morning at the God space, the God space of simplicity. We're going to look at the God space of simplicity. What do we even mean by simplicity? Are we talking about Marie Kondo and the minimalist movement? Are we talking about simple living? What does simplicity mean? Is it a boycott against consumerism or is it a protest against wastefulness? Well, Richard Foster is an author who writes a lot around spiritual disciplines. Awesome guy. I'm actually going to quote him quite a lot today. But he outlines in a deeply challenging way what simplicity means. How do you strip things back and keep things simple? He speaks about simplicity as opposed to duplicity. So being single-minded rather than being double-minded. Simplicity in pursuing one goal over all else. Simplicity is a single focus that aligns every aspect of a person's life. So what does that mean, being single-minded? If we have to look at a passage of Scripture, essentially I think the verse that would wrap up simplicity best is Matthew 6.33 that says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So if that is what you're single-minded about, it means that I pursue his kingdom and his righteousness above all else. It means what aligns every aspect of my life is his kingdom and his righteousness. That is what I run after. I try to get rid of all the other stuff, and that is what I run after. So if I've got a decision to make, what decides the outcome? Well, his kingdom and his righteousness decides the outcome. My time allocations, my budget allocations, the, my allegiances are all defined through the lens of his kingdom. It's putting God and his kingdom and his ways first. And essentially that's what St. Francis did, right? He stripped away, sometimes even literally, everything that took his focus away from seeking the kingdom of God. If something's going to be a distraction, I don't want that. That was his kind of motto. I mean, the goal for all Christians, right, is to seek first God's ways, right? To live according to the kingdom of God, to seek God above all else. You know, we, we, that's what many of us would say that we would put as the most important thing in our life. So do we need to like take off our shoes and preach to the birds like St. Francis? You know, is that what we need to do? No, I don't think so. 
I want to highlight something that I've seen in St. Francis's life, which is huge, I think, especially in the area of simplicity. St. Francis lived with extreme integrity. What he said, he did. What he said he believed, he lived. It was incredible integrity. You could look at his life from the outside and you would know what he stood for by the way that he lived, right? If you look at a bunch of the things that he's quoted as saying, he said, um, it is no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. How cool is that? While you are proclaiming peace with your lips, be careful to have it even more fully in your heart. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. He clearly believed that you need to be what your words say you are. Be single-minded, be true to what you say. That's what it means to be single-minded as opposed to double-minded. And so, for example, if you say you're a follower of Jesus, like St. Francis did, then follow Jesus, right? This seems pretty straightforward, hey? If, if I say I'm going to follow Jesus, then I should. I shouldn't pick and choose and leave some things out. I should just follow. If I say that Jesus is my Lord, which means that he is in charge, then I need to surrender to his will. Like what I say I believe, I need to live out what I believe. It's logical, hey? But aren't we so often duplicit? You know, we don't, there's so many times where we don't live out what we say we believe. We don't live out what we say we value. Why is something so simple so hard? Hey? Because it is. It's simple, but it's hard. And perhaps it's because it is so opposite to the rest of the world. The way that the world operates is completely upside down to the kingdom of God. It feels a little bit like we're swimming upstream. And the water that we're swimming against seems to be coming at us faster and faster and faster and making it harder and harder to live out what we believe. What's honored and applauded and esteemed in our society today is not the simple. It's not the single, hey? It's multitasking and full and busy and complex and more and accumulation and lots. That's what's esteemed around us. And yet, the God space of simplicity is saying, let's peel away the excess so that we can focus on Jesus. The loudest shout, I believe, in our society these days is more. The new economic gospel of consumption, as E.S. Cowdrick called it, he says, is blurring the line between what we need and what we want. More. Richard Foster again said, the unreasoned boast abounds that the good life is found in accumulation, that more is better. But more makes it very difficult for us to be single-minded and focused on the kingdom of God above all else. Now let's remember that people we've looked at over the last few weeks, they were normal people. How did they become heroes of the faith? Well, I would guess it's because they chose to seek first the kingdom of God. They chose to lean into Jesus above all else. And they've subsequently led 
tons of people in the same direction. So where do we find that seek first the kingdom of God in scripture? So it, we find it in Matthew chapter six. It comes at the end of a section where Jesus is speaking about not worrying. Um, it's in the Sermon in the, on the Mount and verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink about your body, what you will wear is life, not more than food and the body more than clothes. And Jesus continues on and he ends that section by saying, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So what will be given? For the things that you worried about, and Jesus is specifically speaking about your needs in terms of clothing and food. He speaks about not worrying. I mean, doesn't he clothe the, the birds of the air? Do they go hungry? Doesn't he clothe the lilies? They're beautifully dressed. So essentially he's saying, instead of living in this constant fruitless worry, let me give you something else to expend your energy on. He's saying, don't worry. Rather pursue my kingdom. Seek first his kingdom. Trust his righteousness and leave him to take care of the rest. That's where that passage wraps up. If we back up even further, before that passage is a passage that's, called, that's entitled Treasures in Heaven, where Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy and where th thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think that Jesus is telling us that actually we're not as clever as we think. Maybe we actually are single-minded. We're not able to multitask as much as we can. We can only either store up our treasures in heaven or on earth, but we've got to be careful where it is because our heart's going to go there as well. So he gives quite serious warnings, saying be careful where you store your stuff because your heart will be there too. And to those who are storing up treasures on earth, let's follow the, the kind of progression of that passage of scripture. Your heart is there too and it's filled with worry. But there's another way. If you store up for yourself treasures in heaven, your heart will be there. If you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all the rest will be added. Not necessarily our wants, but our needs is what he's speaking to. And then Jesus ends the section with a real kicker. Right at the end of that passage, he says, no one can serve two masters. Expands on that by saying, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. No one can serve two masters. Again, the single-mindedness of humans. Jesus isn't saying you shouldn't serve two masters. He's saying you can't. It's almost like he's saying, as the, as the author and creator of humankind, I'm telling you how it is. You can't serve two masters. So you've got to choose who you will serve. He gives some other examples. You can't serve two masters. Life is not measured by how much you own. Just saying, saying it as it is. It is more blessed to give than receive. This is how I made you. This is how it is. This is how the world works. And along with that, he gives us some warnings. Be, be careful about greed. He gives us that example. You can't serve both God and money. Um, he gives us a, a, few, a few directions and guidance as to how you find a life that is full and free. 
We have to use our single-mindedness to choose the right way. John Marcoma, who wrote a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which is a great book, he says this, for Jesus, it's a non-option. You can't serve God and the system. You simply can't live the freedom way of Jesus and get sucked into the overconsumption that is normal in our society. The two are mutually exclusive. You have to pick. The two are mutually exclusive. So does it come down to two kingdoms, right? With two different gospels. So we've got the kingdom of God with the gospel of Jesus Christ that says that life, that is truly life, is only found in Jesus. That's where it's found. It's not dependent on anything else. So wherever you are right now, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you've got lots, whether you've got little, if you've got Jesus, that is where you will find life. That's where life is. The kingdom of the world, the gospel of consumption, as E.S. Caldrick called it, tells us that the more you have, the happier you'll be, which means that if you want to be happier, you need more. It's one of the messages that comes through. So simplicity is saying, I'm going to be single-minded and I'm going to choose God's way. And I'm going to strip down the stuff that confuses me. If John Marcoma is right and he says we have to pick, which will we pick? Can't choose both. We know which path St. Francis of Assisi picked. He said, I'm not going to let anything get in the way. And that brings us to this beautiful God space of simplicity. Where in order to know Jesus deeper and deeper, we need to remove some things that are distracting us from him. Simplicity is an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle. It's an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle. So it starts in our hearts. Starts with us asking some really tough questions. Prepping the sermon, oh my goodness, the Lord and I have done some serious business. Asking some questions, do I really want to seek God's kingdom above all else? Do I really believe that his way is better? Do I really believe that his words are true to the point that I'm willing to forsake all else to follow his words? Or do I believe that I need a side hustle as well? You know, I'll trust God, but I need a side hustle as well. Maybe it's analyzing some direction errors that we've made in our lives, you know? Where have I gone wrong? And admitting some belief systems that I've started really to believe that if I just have this, or if I can just get this, or when I'm in that phase of life, then I'll be content. When Jesus says, all you need is me. So it's a heart thing first. In, pre in preparing, God took me to Paul. And I really spent a bit of time just leaning into his words. And in Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Well, isn't that a secret we all need to learn, hey? The secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through Christ who strengthens me. 
See, the common factor, whether you're well-fed or hungry, whether you're in plenty or want, the common factor is Christ. He brings contentment, not the other stuff. Paul, that same guy, just one chapter earlier, is telling us about his life, and he says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them garbage that I may know that I'm again Christ and be found in him. Where is life found in Christ? Paul kind of flip-flops between wealth and poverty and jail and all sorts, and he's learned the secret of being content, and it's Christ, and nothing that he's experienced compares to Christ. Again, you see the single-mindedness. St. Francis of Assisi left a life of wealth and power, which the world promises will give us life. He left that to find Christ. Is he enough? Will I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? Richard Foster says this, I urge you to still every motion that is not rooted in the kingdom. Become quiet, hushed, motionless, until you are finally centered. Strip away all excess baggage and non-essential trappings until you have come into the stark reality of the kingdom of God. Let go of all distractions until you are driven to the core. Allow God to reshuffle your priorities and eliminate unnecessary froth. Mother Teresa of Calcutta said, pray for me that I not loosen my grip on the hands of Jesus, even under the guise of ministering to the poor. That is our first task, to grip the hands of Jesus with such tenacity that we are obliged to follow his lead, to seek first his kingdom to grip the hands of Jesus. If I picture that, if I'm gripping the hands of someone else, I'm looking straight into the eyes. And I'm not gonna let go of the hands of Jesus. Simplicity is an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle. How it looks from person to person, I believe is varied. We don't want it to become this legalistic thing that says you have to do this, you have to do that. No, what Richard Foster says there, allow God to reshuffle your priorities, to eliminate unnecessary froth. I love that word froth, hey? It's not, it's not a word we use very often. It, it actually took my mind immediately to a cappuccino, you know, froth, just to eliminate unnecessary froth. The truth is that you don't need froth and cappuccino art to drink coffee, some people might not believe me, but you don't need it. You know, it's excess. And sometimes there's too much froth that you can't actually get to your coffee, hey? You know that. I've actually seen people like dip their hand in and scrape that froth off and like chuck it, you know? And I think that's what he's saying. What is the excess here? Froth is not bad. Kevin almost refused to put froth on my cappuccino earlier today. Froth is not bad. Excess is not necessarily bad. You need to work out what that is. But what is keeping you from the kingdom of God? What is the excess in your life? Um, I had quite, quite a lot of fun with this word froth. The actual definition of froth 
as worthless or insubstantial talk ideas or activities. Similar words are irrelevancies, nonsense, rubbish, candy floss, drivel, and twaddle. <laughs> I don't want my life to be defined by drivel and twaddle. And yet so often we allow excess, unnecessary stuff that wastes our time and our energy to take priority in our, in our lives. And that stuff creeps in between us and Jesus. Or sometimes it's the candy floss. I love candy floss. It's sweet and lovely, but it doesn't have any substance. Sometimes that's what creeps between us and Jesus. And so Richard Foster is saying, if you want to enter into this God space of simplicity, get rid of those things that vie for position in our minds, that challenge our allegiance to Christ and make us want to be allied to this thing instead. The worthless activities, the waste, things that complicate our minds. Sometimes those could even be good things, which turn bad because they stand between us and Jesus. How do we simplify our lives so that all we see is Jesus? I think the most obvious practical ways or practical areas to do this in is probably around our time and around our stuff. And again, it will look different for every person. Allow God to work this out in your relationship with him. But there are some practical things that you could kind of just start with. I want to give you guys something practical. You know, simplifying your space, simplifying your time to allow more time and more space for Jesus or allow more time and more space for the kingdom of God. Um, you know, what do you actually value? That's the internal work that you have to do. And once you've worked out what you value, then you just have to make your life actually look like that. Make it look like you actually value that. You know, I really value time with my kids. So why am I on my phone so often when I'm with them? You know? There's something duplicit about that. Or if I say I really value Jesus above all else, but I never have any time for him, either I need to change my statements about what I value or I need to change my diary, you know, so that I can be true to what I say I am. If my identity is found in Christ, then why do I keep on buying brands that make me feel good about myself, you know? Why can't I just shop for, like, usefulness rather than status? So how can I be true to what I say I am? So a few principles. I'm going to fly through these. Four things about stuff, four things about time. Use what you want to use. Check what you need to check. Some principles around stuff. Develop a habit of giving things away. It reminds us that this thing does not own us. It does not have power over us. It helps us to combat greed. It helps us to combat selfishness. We can start in our cupboards. We can start a life of simplicity just in our cupboards and drop a whole bunch of stuff at hidden treasure. Secondly, consider what you buy. Like, do we even think about what we buy or why we are buying it? Do I really need it? Or am I filling some other need in my life? And so I just shop online all the time for stuff that I don't really need. Will owning this thing add to my life and my purpose or will it distract me from it? You know, is it good for me? Is it good for other people? Be really healthily skeptical 
around um, buy now and pay later schemes. You know, if you need something so urgently but you can't afford it, question that. Learn to enjoy things without owning them. You can enjoy so much without having to own it. Ownership seems like a bit of an obsession in our culture. We can enjoy so much stuff without owning it or, or own it with someone. You can share stuff. There are two ways to get enough, G.K. Chesterton says. One is to continue to accumulate more and more, and the other is to desire less. St. Francis of Assisi, um, it was said that he led a cheerful, happy revolt against the spirit of materialism. We can do that as well. A few things around time, a few practicals around time. Firstly, slow down. Let's slow down a little bit. Many of us are moving at a pace that is just unsustainable. You might be even thinking, Debbie, the stuff you're saying is lovely, but who has time for that? You know? Just slow down. It helps us to remember what's really important. Watch your yeses and your noes. What do you say yes to? What do you need to say no to? Many of us need to say no to a lot more things. Remember saying yes to something is in a sense saying no to something else. So rather be intentional with what you say no to so that you can make space to say yes to the things that are really important. Do less better. Do less better. And lastly, reject anything that is producing an addiction in you. You can put this in any category, actually. The reason I put it under time is because we probably all need to question our relationship with our phones, with social media, with general media, with the time wasters in our lives. We say we have not got any time. Why? Remember the purpose of simplicity. The purpose of simplicity is to shun anything that distracts me from seeking first the kingdom of God. It's easy to focus on the pursuit of really good, legitimate things. We focus on those things, things like job or position or status, family, friends, security. We focus so much on them that they can become the center of attention. Jesus says his way is to seek first the kingdom of God and all the other stuff will be added to you. When you focus on the stuff in the pursuit of fullness and life and happiness, we often don't get it. When we focus on the kingdom of God, we get that and some of the stuff. He adds what is necessary. And so simplicity, as I finish off, is a discipline and it's a grace. It's a discipline because it's something we have to do. It's not going to fall into our laps. It's something that we have to choose and it's something that we have to fight for. We have to choose to push things out of the way because they keep crowding in on us. But it is a grace because the life and the fullness that is found as we strip away the layers, as we experience clarity and freedom, and for everything we remove, we find more of Jesus. It is a supernatural gift that is worth every effort that we put in. So let's seek first his kingdom. Above all else, let's seek Jesus. 
and let him take care of the rest. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are enough. Thank you that we can be completely content in a relationship with you. But God, it is so hard with everything around us and just everything around us is so contrasting to that truth. Protect our minds from believing the lies around us, that we need more, that we need different. And help us to seek first your kingdom. Give us strength to remove some things that we might need to remove as we lean into this God's place of simplicity. And may we find more of you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless everyone. Have a wonderful Sunday and keep it simple.